Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in New York City, I'm really pleased to say Peter Hooper dropping by, Deutsche Bank's Securities Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning, Jonathan. Great to catch up with you on a day that global risk appetite appears to be returning. Are you confident that this has got some fundamental underpinnings? Well, uh, John, I think there's several things uh, at, at work here. Uh, one is, uh, you know, the, the economy continues to toot along at 3% plus and uh, recession. People were concerned about near-term recession risks. Those are receding. Uh, we put out a piece yesterday saying that there's a good chance that the Powell Fed can achieve history here by avoiding a recession altogether as you look into 2020 and 2021. Uh, that, that, that view could be having a bit of an effect. And, and I think development is on the trade front, uh, probably overall right. a, a bit more positive. Uh, certainly we're avoiding, uh, uh, it looks like we're avoiding a major trade war over NAFTA uh, with Europe. Uh, and the Trump administration's pushing hard in the one area where there is a lot of uh, bipartisan wait, wait, support vis-a-vis -vis China. That's too much optimism for a Friday morning, right? <laughs> it's all gloom and doom Friday. I mean, I'm it's, waiting it's to read doom, 18 the 20, gloom the and doom. The 2020 doom crew. Go to cash. You know? <laughs> I mean, I mean it, this is way too... We're, do we allow this much optimism in we, our news We can studio? allow it. We can allow it on a week where we've had okay. about 25 different economists talk about a downturn in 2020. Exactly. You think it's different this time, though you dare not write it in the piece that it's different this time. Tell me why it might be different this time. Well, we did actually put those words in the piece uh, somewhat sheepishly, but uh, it is different this time because uh, you look at every recession we've had since the late 1940s, uh, it's been a, a tight labor market and the Fed uh, tightening, but almost all of them have also been accompanied by a major investment overhang, overbuilding in housing, overbuilding in business equipment and uh, structures. That's not there this time. I mean, this is that's what usually when the Fed starts to tighten, that's that that kind of spending collapses and pushes you into recession. We don't have it. It's been a very slow, gradual recovery. Housing vacancies are at all-time highs. I mean, all-time lows. Excuse me. Housing market quite tight, and no one says business capital has been booming this time around. Productivity growth still at near historic lows. Uh, we, we have a long ways to go there. So uh, I think the Fed has some, some, some things going for it. So let's set up the framework for the way you think about things right now. Most of the people that come on this program look at 4% GDP growth and they say, yeah, great. But in 2020, we're heading for a recession potentially. You're saying we could come short of that. We could be doing okay. And that this time could be different. Typically, and I can't think of one historical example of where the Federal Reserve has engineered a soft landing can you <laughs> no it, it hasn't happened before but i think uh they have it they have a chance this time they do have to have a slowdown we have to have a growth go below potential it's got to be drop below two percent and we think it probably will be somewhere in the one one and a half percent range in 2020 it will be a noticeable slowdown but it doesn't have to be a recession because you don't have that normal cyclical spending overspending which drives you yeah. down uh, in, in place we interrupt now jeffrey frankel out with a great essay uh which i put out on project syndicate uh on uh china the president in trade he wrote an essay years ago i believe for mber uh, dr hooper about defining a recession and the I can we review? We haven't done this, John, in ages. But 
you know, the, the canon is a recession is two negative GDP quarters. And guys like you and Professor Frankel say, no, it isn't. It's more subtle than that. What's a recession? Well, a, a, a recession, you know, I'll go with the two negative uh, quarters in GDP. That's that's not a bad okay. proxy. Uh, but labor, labor comes in here as oh, well, yeah, right? Yeah, you have to have a significant increase in unemployment. Uh, a probably a fairly sharp one. Typically, uh, labor market overshoots, uh, unemployment going well below Nehru, and then zooms up in a relatively brief period going back. Uh, we think this, this zoom up can be a more gradual process. We could they think a slowdown uh, with, with, a, with a return to Nehru over a couple of years can do it without going into a deep downturn or recession. Where's Nehru? Nehru? Oh, Nehru, the uh, non-accelerating rate of unemployment. Uh, Where is it? it? No one else does, wise okay. guy. <laughs> it is. It is. It is uh, exactly four point three five. No, I, you know, it's somewhere in the four and a quarter, four and a half percent range. Uh, the latest official number put out by Congressional Budget Office, I think, was four six. I think you look at uh, FOMC um, indications where longer run uh, unemployment is in longer term. It's it's four five, four four. I think probably we'll see it come down a little bit uh, next week to four four. What are the signs that we've gone through it? What are the signs we've gone through it? Well, we, we are seeing we are seeing a gradual uptrend in wage inflation now. Both the average hourly earnings and employment cost index, which several years ago were around one and a half percent, have now gotten up close to three percent. It's been a fairly steady march up as the labor market has tightened. I think that's probably the best indicator. How do you respond to yields? Uh, you wrote an important piece at Deutsche Bank earlier this summer on the yield curve. You told everybody to calm down. But, but in general, the yield lift of the past 10 days, how do you respond to that? Uh, it's, I'm, I'm saying, well, it's finally happening. We've been expecting this for some time. We wouldn't be surprised to see a 10-year yield get up somewhere closer to 3.5% by late, next, late, late this year, early next year. Uh, our, our sense is the economy has a lot of momentum. Labor market's continuing to tighten. Wage inflation's been rising. Price inflation's back to where the Fed wants it, and it's likely to overshoot a bit. This is a recipe for the Fed to continue on this gradual pace of rate hikes. Uh, it doesn't make sense that the 10-year would, would remain uh, unchanged in, in, this, uh, in this environment uh, until it looks like we're going into a slowdown, and we don't think that'll happen until the latter part of next year. I think most people would agree with that sentiment as well, Peter. And I think what's interesting about this week is that global risk appetite has returned on a week where Treasury yields have grinded higher. Mm -hmm. We've seen it in Japan this morning as well, with JGBs mm -hmm. at the long end. Yields started to drift higher too. I think we've got 2018 highs in the Japanese bond market in terms of yield. Do you think the economy can withstand higher Treasury yields? Because so far, it's done absolutely fine. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I think, you know, uh, I, I think the key issue here is when interest-sensitive spending globally, interest-sensitive spending that's sensitive to U.S. interest rates globally begins to have, uh, uh, complain, I don't think it's until the Fed gets up to into the th above 3% in the 3 and a quarter, 3.5% range. We're, we're, we're feeling some pain from emerging markets now, okay? That's mostly idiosyncratic. It's it's not contagion on a big on a big scale resulting from Fed tightening. That will probably come. I think uh, we're we're expecting some probably sometime in the second half next year, uh, and that probably spill over into yeah. you know this 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 risk on will become risk off. Uh, 
and we'll see a drop in financial conditions. And that was, that's what's, along with some slowing of fiscal stimulus, that's what's going to generate this slowdown we're expecting yeah. in 2020. Peter, it's great to catch up with you. Some really, really thoughtful stuff from the Deutsche Bank team this week. Peter Hooper, Deutsche Bank Securities Chief Economist. Reach out to Peter and the team if you want to get the research, how the Powell Fed can make history and why, Tom Keen, it might be different this time. It's a really thoughtful piece. And now we're going to go essentially to China because Freer Bamish of Pantheon has real hands-on living in Chinese, uh, China experience, I should say. Freer, good morning to you. What will be the response of the Communist Party and not so much the people of China or President Xi and the elite of China, but just the party apparatus from sea to shining sea of China. What will there be response, their response be to President Trump's trade war? Well, I think at this stage we're seeing um, a very measured response from the Chinese trying to kind of take the high road um, in that sense. And then I guess your question really speaks to what what um, is going to be the response of, of the people of, of China to the extent that one can one can generalize. And will they accept the narrative um, that is coming from the, the leaders on high that we're protecting you by not escalating this trade war, by by not just responding to Mr. Trump's tweets? And I guess we, we can we can hope at least that a lot of the the kind of if one wants to say vitriol uh, of that is coming out of of the the U.S. side of this of this um, so the, the negotiations if we can even call them negotiations is um, maybe that starts to die down a bit after the midterm elections. Um, certainly, Mr. Trump's uh, most recent response. I'm not sure what the venue was for that. It might have been more kind of a, an audience type of, of response. I'm prepared to eat my words on this at any stage and then to regurgitate them um, almost immediately afterwards if, if the, yeah. the, the story changes. But looking at the, the short-term tea leaves here, um, the, what we've had this week is that we've had a, a big um, escalation from Mr. from Mr. Trump at the beginning of the week. China um, then had a very measured response to that. They, they said 5 to 10 percent tariffs on, on 60 billion of goods, which is a kind of a drop in the water, really, in, in, in the bucket um, in the context of, of what's been imposed from, from Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump has said he's going he's gonna to slap the tariffs on, on a further 267 billion of goods um, as soon as China retaliates. We haven't had yeah. that yet. We've had a kind of with some some rhetoric, um, but it, it, at this stage, if he's willing to put off the the, 20, the rise to twenty five percent till January, till after Christmas, till after the midterms, um, because of the to, to give businesses time to adjust, it doesn't seem likely at this stage that we're going to see him um, turn around and say, well, okay, well, I'm going to immediately slap yeah. on the the tariffs yeah. on the two hundred sixty seven. So that's the short term answer to that, and there's a very different longer term answer to that. And certainly, I see China and the U S on a collision course there. Well, I think the, the longer term outcome warrants a much longer conversation than the time we have this morning. Yeah. I think, Fred, there's plenty of things that investors are interested in, but if I could pick two of them. One is the trade conversation you've just laid out for us. The second part is how China responds with policy tools outside of trade. Are we shifting towards an easing bias, and have we done that already? What are the signs that you see, Freya, that that's happening right now in China? 
I think we are seeing that easing bias. I think we would have seen that regardless of what was going on in, in the trade wars by this stage of years. I, one of the, the indicators that I look at most closely is M1, and M1 is, is a great leading indicator for China because it's such a banking-centric um, economy, and there's shadow banking elements to that as well. But the, it, the M1 tends to have a good kind of two or three-quarter lead on, on GDP growth, and I'm talking nominal GDP growth here. And that's been showing uh, a, a, a substantial slowdown um, since since the middle right. of 2016 and together that indicates that G- GDP growth would be slowing into into the in- beginning of next year. Um, but, but we are well, starting to see it pick up again now. This is uh, really the, the Chinese easing response. We've got to rip up the scripture. This is really important. M1, you mean M1 in China, not M1 in the United yeah. States, right? No, actually, in the United States, we don't see so much of, of that uh, of, of the money indicators being being so important. But in in China and the likes of Europe, even really where banks are more important than yeah. they are in in the U.S. as a kind of a, as financial intermediaries, relatively speaking, relative to other forms of, of financing, M1 in China in particular right. is a very good um, leading indicator. Uh, Freya Bemish, uh, thank you so much. Greatly uh, appreciate that uh, this morning. John Farrow and Tom Keen, our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studios. We are thrilled for the support from Interactive Brokers. And we are also thrilled to bring you what I think on an almost theology basis is the political interview of the weekend. Uh, The gentleman from the 6th Congressional District of Pennsylvania, Ryan Anthony Costello, is in the absolute crosshairs of national gerrymandering and also... A centrist. How rare is that? He joins us now as he retires from Congress in a bit. But Ryan, far more importantly, is the idea that you've had the courage to take a middle ground. You see it in the statistics out by all the pundits, the Cook Report and and all that. How lonely is it to be in the middle in Washington? There are other uh, members such as that. But what it does bring about, Tom, is uh, no matter what you do, you always have uh, about 40% of the electorate uh, ticked off at you. <laughs> yeah. Within sometimes the... it changes, though. Sometimes it's the left, sometimes it's the right, depending upon the How issue. is that changing right now? What's, the, what's the, the marginal change now between a polarized left and a polarized right? Or do we need to wait farther to get to 2020 to see that? I think probably uh, uh, farther to 2020, and but of course the issue sets, uh, you, you know, change. Um, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, who may be ticked off at you? Well, the goal obviously is always to try and work to get to that 80-20 solution where you can get 80 percent of the people behind you. And I do think where we're falling short is that on some of these issues we can get. 80, 20 issues, we might, don't, we might not be getting 100% of an issue solved, but we should be finding right. the areas where we, you know, get, get the, find where the consensus is, do that, and then the stuff we can't agree to, let, let that linger another day and fight for another day. Congressman, a pleasure to speak to you in terms of my Tuesday evening reality early in November of 2016. I was standing in a living room, I believe I was watching CNN, and there was a dawning reality that Secretary Clinton would barely win Bucks County. I was thunderstruck at how the president did so well in Bucks County. And that was the first moment I realized we would have a President uh, Trump. If that election was held today, would the president get that close again in Bucks County? Less than 3,000 votes? 
He he would not. Uh, there's some polling I think that suggests that uh, he's lost uh, five, maybe even ten points um, in that county. Uh, and in that specific case, Lower Bucks County, which has a lot more, uh, I don't want to overgeneralize, but working class um, voters uh, saw in President Trump someone who was going to disrupt the system, who was speaking their language, uh, you know, be it trade deals or some other um, even cultural issues, he felt uh, spoke to them. They felt spoke to them. Um, at this point, and you're right, though, uh, that is, I think, where the, the, the tipping point for him in yeah. parts of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Yeah. I was very surprised. I did not expect uh, President Trump to win. I thought Hillary Clinton in Bucks County or where I'm from, Chester County in the Philadelphia suburbs, right. uh, would have performed uh, better than she did. Uh, within this, Congressman, is the Tax Reform Act. There's a couple articles this week clearly suggesting in the zeitgeist that it's not playing well with frontline, mainline Republicans. It's only a product for the rich and the Gilded Age uh, that we live in. How do Republicans sell the benefits of the new tax reform to the broad spectrum of America? I think you have to do a couple things. Number one, we don't have inversions anymore. So the, the, the challenge here, and I think you've correctly identified it, is in talking about how corporate tax reform benefits everyone, uh, that can get lost in the shuffle. It's an abstraction. I think you have to point to the stock market. You have to point to low unemployment. You have to point to um, the fact that companies aren't leaving America anymore. Uh, that's one piece of the puzzle. The other one is looking at the wage increase growth. We've seen in the past year Wage increase growth of about 3%. Uh, that's significant. Final piece here is, and this is a bigger challenge because it hasn't happened yet, folks have not filed, obviously, their 2018 tax returns yeah. yet. That's when you're going to see that family, that middle-income in, middle class family, um, estimated, again, a generalization of a, a couple thousand dollars. Uh, we cannot rely as Republicans just on saying we passed tax reform, the economy is going good, vote for us. There has to be more than that. The other thing I would say, Democrats have really doubled and tripled down on their counter messaging on this. And that's the other reason why I think it has not really been embedded as a positive in the minds of every single Republican voter or, or every single independent or Democratic voter. Congressman Costello with us, the 6th District of uh, Pennsylvania. Congressman, as you look across the aisle, there's you know a developing Democrat Party strategy, one of progressive, one of what some would suggest is extreme, and like the Republicans, trying to find a path to the middle. In a distant part of Pennsylvania, I know you've never been to Pittsburgh, but just southwest of Pittsburgh, uh, Mr. Lamb did better than good. Is one of your yeah. great fears for the GOP is the Democrats find more Connor Lambs? Well, uh, not too far from me, uh, Berks County, which I represent uh, part of right now, and Lebanon County, uh, as you head towards Hershey, Pennsylvania, used to be represented by Tim Holden, another blue dog Democrat. And what you're finding is that uh, Democrats, who are who do uh, culturally connect uh, with their region remind those Democratic voters that voted for Trump that there are Democrats out there like them. They're just looking for those kinds of Democrats. They're going to have the same challenge that Republicans have, and that is you have a progressive left, which if you poll it, um, view socialism as favorable, right? I mean, that's really, I mean, we're talking really left type 
uh, progressives. And so they have the same ideological tensions that Republicans have at times. Um, and so yeah. you're sort of seeing this strange mixture uh, in the Democratic Party where they're going to have their own uh, sets of issues. But in certain parts of Pennsylvania and across the country, in the Midwest, and Pittsburgh is the Midwest, <laughs> um, Philadelphia, I would say, isn't, uh, but oh. in, in the Midwest. No, no, it's not. I mean, Pittsburgh, I mean, it's interesting. Pennsylvania is kind of the dividing line between the Midwest and Western Pennsylvania really? and the Northeast. I didn't know the, that. Yeah, that's, this is, it's the Steelers versus Eagles, baby. Um, and uh, in the Midwest, uh, those Democrats have to be, not only they have to be, and they also have to be perceived as different Democrats than the progressive left in order to win, just like Republicans in my neck of the woods need to be viewed as, you know, your suburban, moderate, centrist Republican, not your Tea Party, anti-establishment Republican that's willing to shut the government down. A lot of voters uh, are not going to go for that brand of Republicanism either. So it's, it, it, it creates, I think, actually, Tom, the kind of America that we have, which is yeah. one that's constantly, you know, the winds shift a little bit, and you have to reflect the passions of the time, but you also have to demonstrate thoughtfulness and a degree of independence as a member of Congress, because I think voters, ultimately, a lot of voters who aren't just going to vote straight R or straight D, are looking for yeah. that uh, that that independent brand and that check and balance on executive yeah. branch on regulatory agencies and and are trying to focus right. on local issues too. Did you see Did you see John Farrell how the congressman got in that slam against the Pittsburgh Steelers? I felt for a moment like I was doing drive time KDKA radio CBS Radio Pittsburgh. I Con- do like to see I like the Steelers, but I love the Eagles. Oh, you just yeah. thank God you're retiring, Congressman. Thank you so much, Ryan Costello from. Philadelphia, I might point out, and with Kevin Cirilli, all Eagles. Uh, uh, An important conversation there. A Betsy Grasick research piece reads dense. It is loaded with math. It is loaded with ratios. And it always ends up being a smart dissertation on what's going on. She joins us this morning. Betsy, the operating incomes of these beasts continues to grow. Is there no end in sight? Does the operating, the profit of of our major banks, does it just continue to advance? You know, Tom, there's a this note that we wrote is all about tech and technology and investing in tech, and it is driving operating leverage. And uh, that's one of the key levers for why we do have some improvement here in operating profit of the U.S. banks. U.S. banks catching a bit of a bit over the uh, last week, Betsy, largely off the back of this mild sort of steepening of the yield curve back up to a a massive 26 basis points, twos versus tens. Um, Betsy, how much support can you expect (laughs) from the the shape of the yield curve going forward from here? Yeah, you know, Jonathan, the um, shape of the curve definitely is a little bit of a help, but um, that's not the only thing that's driving our outlook here for the institutions, you know, Number one is the uh, operating leverage from this investment spend in technology. And then, you know, we also have, I know, a little bit of loan growth. It's not as much as some people want, but you have a little bit of, uh, you know, commercial industrial loan growth picking up here in the third quarter. You expect to get more volume in terms of loan growth, Betsy? What's driving that? Well, you know, we're talking about small numbers, right? We're talking about 3% going to 4%. And that is, in a large part, a function of 
commercial industrial loans, which are beginning to accelerate. That's a function of uh, companies beginning some CapEx, as well as uh, a little bit of M&A investment. Betsy, I want to talk about your wonderful research report, a collaborative effort by uh, Morgan Stanley. And, you know, I, I, I look at this report is almost a 2019, as you say, a call to arms. And folks, all you need to know about technology is the following. New entrants able to provide banking services for up to 50% cheaper. Why don't you have a picture of Jeff Bezos on the cover? <laughs> well, he's not into banking directly yet, right? Yet. So <laughs> uh, the picture on the cover, though, I think does give, you know, this report the, um, you know, the background for the report, which is essentially a strategic uh, imperative for bank management to invest in the technology to get four things right. You know, one is a customer-centric view. And I do want to highlight here, this is a global effort. My colleague in London, Julia Miato, she really drove this note. Uh, importantly, the board's strategic agenda has to be customer-centric view at the heart of the bank, fix the legacy systems, make them work for you, not against you, um, embrace change, and get to scale. And, you know, getting to scale can be through a variety of ways, partnering with fintechs, partnering with yeah. service providers, or M&A. You know, it's just one of those things. Yeah, but Amazon always wins at this. Is it the idea of retail <laughs> players like Amazon come in to take on Fortress Diamond and Fortress Moynihan and the rest, or is it something more techie, techie, Google, you know, let's write code kind of stuff? <laughs> um, at this stage, we believe the banks are, you know, that embrace change and put their customers at the heart of right. their IT platforms. It's more the techie, techie, and, you know, my, my opinion, more the techie, techie side than the okay. we're going to be taken over by big tech. Okay. But, hey, this is an evolving discussion. So right not over who's gonna who's gonna lead the charge on this is mr diamond doing it or is there another bank that has best practices on the new technology you know we have in here global note um a group of institutions that we think are best in class and there's about 12 or 15 of them out of the u.s yeah we're talking about bank of america and jpm okay. and bank of america in the consumer space right is really leading the pack interesting Interesting. Well, just one more piece of gossip before we let you go, Betsy. And, and that is the theme this week of the zeitgeist at Bank of America is not getting it done in investment banking. Folks, for all of you that know, the investment bankers never wear bow ties. They don't know who AC Milan is. They're smooth guys out in the Hamptons You're just doing deals. They're, they're better people than us. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay, exactly. Well said. Betsy, give us an update on investment banking for Mr. Moynihan. What's really going on there? You know, look, um, my opinion here is that in B of A, their focus is, as you well know, Tom, quality growth, right? Yeah. And quality growth means uh, stick to your knitting. And I view that their investment banking business is more of a, you know, corporate centric, uh, client centric, and right. flow driven. More of the plain vanilla. Yeah, that's like, that's RWAs. called. You're too young for this, Betsy. But that's called doing a chemical bank. But the answer is that's what they want to get back to, right? Well, I think that's where they are. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Betsy. Very quickly, yeah. what's your single best buy right now? 
Topic State Street. Okay. Very good. Betsy Grace. You want to know why? Well, please. Yes, we want to know why. <laughs> okay. So, look, State Street is our top pick in U.S. large cap banks, and the main reason is that they have uh, come under some pressure as a stock recently when they announced the CRD acquisition, which is a technology play, in my opinion. And I believe the market is being too punitive on that. And happy to get into that more, okay. you know, another time if you want. No, we're going to can't do it right now. Betsy Grasick, thank you so much for Morgan Stanley. Congratulations on this important research piece on technology and with banking. Of course, Betsy Grasick of Morgan Stanley. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.